Welcome to the New Books Network. In recent years, the niqab has emerged as one of the most ubiquitous symbols of everything that is perceived to be wrong with Islam. Barbarity, backwardsness, exploitation of women, and political radicalization. Yet all these notions are assigned to women who wear the niqab without their consultation. So-called niqab debates are held without their voices being heard, and when they do speak, their views are dismissed. Wearing the niqab, Muslim women in the UK and the US, brings niqab wearers' voices to the fore, discussing their narratives on religious agency, identity, social interaction, community, and urban spaces. Anna Piella situates women's accounts firmly within UK and US social political contexts, as well as within media discourses on Islam. The picture painted by the stories told here demonstrates that, for these women, Religious symbols such as the niqab are deeply personal, freely chosen, multi-layered, and socially situated. In our conversation, we discussed religious explanations for wearing niqab, public notions of what constitutes religious practice, mainstream media's image of niqab wearers, niqabi-inclusive journalism, contradictions between religious perspectives and secular frameworks, Muslim use of social media, religious identity and pious dress, and intersections of racism and sexism with wearing the niqab. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now here's my conversation with Anna Piella about her book, Wearing the Niqab, Muslim Women in the UK and the US, published with Bloomsbury in 2021. Welcome, Anna. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm very good, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Very excited to talk to you about your book, Wearing the Niqab. Uh, before we get into the book, uh, we always start a little with our author's background. So uh, can you tell us how you got into Islamic studies? Were there uh, moments or mentors that kind of shaped you know, the topics you uh, pursue or how you, how you approach them? Sure. Um, it's a quite a quite a lengthy story, so I'll give you a short version <laughs> of that. <laughs> Probably a long story with most people, but uh, my my undergraduate degree was in my major was um, in politics, but um, I found I found that um, a very very dreary topic the way it was sort of served up at my at my at my <clears throat> alma mater. So I I was really really interested in in. In, in programs and courses that were being delivered sort of in parallel beside me, so to speak, um, in, in neighboring institutes and uh, departments. And I really, really um, got interested in in a program which was called, I think, Middle Eastern Studies. Um, so that's where I I ended up writing my, my, my thesis. And um, um, that's, that's where... where that's where I realized that you know there's 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 more to it in terms of um, politics. That um, you know, pol- politics was um, sort of taught in a much more fascinating and engaging way uh, over there. So I sort of I was still technically a politics student, but um, you know I I went to a lot of lectures and and workshops over there. <clears throat> also, one of my good friends um, from college was um, she was studying Turkish studies. Um, so. I would hang out with her and I would, you know, sometimes just, um, you know, like flick through her books. And um, again, you know, there's, there's, that was my first sort of 
academic sort of contact with 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 Islamic studies. Um, that was one one of her courses. Um, so when I graduated, I decided that you know this is what I would like to um, sort of continue in grad school, and um, and so um, I, I I moved to England, um, and I, I started at, um, I started grad school at the University of York. My um, my advisor was Professor um, Professor Halle Asher, and she was um, she was um, you know one of the sort of big stars of Islamic studies in the UK. Um, she was she was um, advising on the topic of Islamic feminism, and so yeah, um, at the time, the idea of digital religion was a very sort of new and fresh idea, and um, I I became interested in the you know I, at at first I was um, Sort of browsing through a lot of pages, web pages uh, related to Islam, and um, I realized that a lot of them had <laughs> a lot of them had women um, as a sort of discrete category, along with like food and customs, and um, you know um, that 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 seemed a little strange to me because you know to just put like half half the population of a <laughs> religious tradition as a sort of category. Um, um, you know, and I, I started asking the, the questions that you know. Um, now I now those of us um, who teach sort of digital religion always always kind of you know um, suggest to students you know who who might be the author of that page who is missing you know what what are the silences, and so um, I I sort of figured maybe I instinctively sort of felt that women themselves if they were authors of such a website they would not put themselves as a category it felt distinctly sort of male made this sort of digital production and so you know that i deduced that there must be there must be corners of the of the you know virtual sphere that um women women you know <clears throat> women inhabit and um that's how my phd pro um, project really was born that um i basically i went and i found um there were there were closed groups um email groups that was before you know, social media and web to zero. So um, these women were kind of collaborating and, and interacting, um, discussing Islamic sources. And, and so really that project was um, very much a sort of sociology of religion um, project, project in that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, <clears throat> looking at it from a theological perspective myself, but I was more interested in analyzing how women how women, Muslim women themselves, developed their own theolo theologies. So um, that was my first book. Um, and yeah, I mean, it went from there. Um, I, I, after I published my first book, I, I got a job at um, a small um, sort of liberal arts college in England. I, I, I was teaching religious studies in Islam, and um, and you know that that's um, that's that was the sort of place where where um all the debates about the niqab uh which was the topic of my second book uh were very relevant because in the that was in the north of england um in a city um called leeds next to bradford and that's a uh, an area that's a region of, of of england um that has a high percentage of you know of, of um, british muslims so so there were there were quite a lot of women who were the niqab um on the one hand you know i, I could sort of see them um sort of moving around um the sort of social social geographic space but also there was a lot about that in the in the media and in the politics 
So, um, sh should I should I continue just sort of to explain the rationale of the book? Um, yeah, to... yeah. So this uh, this is really interesting. Uh, knowing this kind of larger background, um, when you read this book, you you really tie these kind of uh, digital spaces, sociological spaces, political spaces, media spaces, uh, really seamlessly throughout the the book, wearing the niqab, uh, in the sense that you kind of both kind of analyze how outsiders or non-Muslims are talking about this subject, but then also how women are understanding and expressing this in a kind of variety of ways to different audiences. Um, but yeah, this is this is good to know. How, can you talk a little bit about how the book kind of, uh, it, it sounds like it was sparked by the conversations around you, but when did you decide, okay, this is, this is something that I'm going to put together as a book? Um, so in 2013, um, there was... There was a big controversy, I believe, around around um, elementary school teachers um, wearing the niqab um, at work, um, and uh, th those sort of events always sparked a bigger sort of public conversation about, you know, should we ban the niqab like the French did, or you know, is it is it compatible with the so-called British values? And um, those those debates, those kind of conversations were always incredibly aggressive in incredibly negative um in um you know toward, toward the women who, who chose to wear the niqab and um well one one very sort of characteristic um feature of those conversations was that in at least in 2013 i don't recall a single woman um sort of um invited to a tv studio or uh, even asked to comment um in a, in a newspaper article um so that that to me was shocking because you know I I, um, I expected a sort of you know um, sort of journalistic principles being upheld that you ask people um, you know not not just one side of the conversation right that everybody gets a say and here we had a situation where certainly not everybody got a say and um, I would say the, those women were central to the whole conversation like how could you how could you exclude them. Uh, given that they, you know, um, presumably would have had to um, say the most, um, you know, as, ex ex as people who actually experience this, um, people who engage in this religious practice. Um, and of course, you know, I, I understand that um, the, the stereotype of the, you know, the silent Muslim woman or the, the um, subjugated woman who does not have a voice really played out, in, uh, I think, in this. Um, and so there was nothing in the media that I could find that would in, sort of in, engage these these women. So I thought, okay, so maybe maybe the maybe the academic sources, maybe there will be some some articles or, or some books about this. You know, maybe somebody interviewed them. And I was sh shocked to say, to to, to be honest, to, to to see that um, the situation was the same. So um, there was quite a lot, um, quite quite a lot of research about about the experiences of hijab wearing but um as as far as the niqab there was um there was nothing um maybe maybe you know like may, maybe one or two sort of interviews in a larger corpus of you know maybe 20 interviews um um 18 of which would be with the women who wore the hijab and one or two with women who wore the niqab but you know the niqab really was not sort of tackled in term, you know as a sort of central central um centrally as a religious practice so, you know, I, I figured, um, you know, this was worth, um, it was, you know, so basically I, I had to write the, the, that book that I couldn't mm -hmm. find, you know, um, I, I couldn't find that book. Um, and I wanted to, to, 
to tackle this, you know, from, from a different perspective. So I wanted to start with the women. And um, I was I was kind of really, really keen on giving giving or sharing the agenda with them. Um, and um, and so, yeah, um, my, sort of my preference would have been to just talk about their you know, religious experience and um, what they think about it and completely leave behind the sort of political layer of it. But, um, you know, it, it's impossible because in those accounts, in the interviews, the political stuff came up anyway, because, um, you know, everything is dialogic. Um, nothing is out, outside of a context. So that context inevitably had a role. And you know, it, it's... Um, but I, I tried to put their experiences and their arguments sort of um, as a starting point and in the center um, and not to sort of be overtaken by the, the other stuff, because, you know, there was actually quite a lot um, of academic literature, scholarship about, you know, um, you know, the, the, the legal aspect of niqab wearing. Um, there were quite, quite a lot of um, those articles um, that didn't rely on interviews with women, but, you know, they were just analysis, um, sort of a humanistic analysis that, um, you know, talked about, um, you know, um, human rights or, you know, there, there was even a whole sort of um, bunch of articles uh, written by kind of medical researchers talking about, you know, does the niqab uh, have an impact on vitamin D production or on driving and ice and, and things like that. So, yeah, there was like practically... <laughs> Every social science and um, and humanities discipline and beyond had something about the niqab, but without you know women's voices. So, so you know that's that's uh, that's how this came about. Um, and I I partnered with a women's Muslim women's um, NGO. Um, it was called Muslim Women's Council, and um, and so they 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 sort of introduced me um, to quite a lot of my interviewees. Um, um, not all of them, but quite a few um, through their events. And, um, you know, I, I was able to just tag along and introduce myself. And um, quite, quite a few women were interested in the project. So they ended up, um, you know, being interviewed. But um, one other of my friends had a friend who was a teacher in an Islamic girls school. So I was able to interview all the all the teachers who are, you know, Nikabi women. So, you know, it, by virtue of being... Um, sort of um of living in a in a place where i could make those kind of um, personal connections it was actually you know um quite a quite an interesting and you know i wouldn't say it was an easy process um you know i i'm not muslim i'm you know i'm sort of you know your re your regular white female researcher um who's who you know who who had to be in some ways checked out right she um you know so a lot of women for example asked me for my previous work just to just to kind of see the style i was writing in and um my arguments um to make sure that i wasn't going to sensationalize sensationalize them um uh, but yeah um so that was the the british part but um um then the, there was some turmoil in my in my personal life i knew i was going to moved to the United States. And so, you know, that um quite naturally that interest sort of, you know, connected to a new new um context or new setting. And um, you know, I, I figured it would be really interesting um to sort of to do have do a a few interviews in the United States, um, perhaps not to compare, but uh 
at the time, um, you know, there was nothing about the niqab in the United States um, as a religious practice. And um, it's, yeah, it just it just seems prudent to basically co cover this sort of new geographical region um, because, um, in you know, the, the, at, at the time, you know, that was probably 2017 or 18. By then, a few, a few titles came out. Um, there were a few reports um, from France and from Canada that did um, include quite a few interviews with um, Nikabe women, but um, there was still nothing um, from the United States. So, um, yeah, so that's that's how the book sort of um, became, um, you know, framed by these two um, sort of um, two, two national contexts. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it works well too. The the you know you're not specifically comparing them, but the kind of different contexts do kind of illuminate different things. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, right, the kind of debates around religious practice are much more heated, especially in France, but also in parts of, of Canada, which you mentioned. And one of the things I really liked about the book that I thought a lot of people could um, kind of use in classes or just kind of in their own understanding is I feel like you get at kind of what what constitutes religious practice in these different places? Um, you know, there's a kind of different general sense of what religious practice is. And in, in many cases, uh, religious dress did not, was not always legible as this is a religious practice rather than it being symbolic of something, right? But rather that many of the women you're talking about talk about it as this is my religious practice, where that was not always uh understood in that way by by non-muslim audiences so i'm wondering if you could if there's anything you could say just as a general uh feature of what what do you think the the book might help us understand about what constitutes religious practice or where religious practice might be possible or how it might be possible in the u.s and uk versus perhaps yeah. france or something like that yeah so um you know, I, I I take definitely the sort of um, academically speaking a constructivist view of religious practice. Um, you know, whoever says something is their religious practice, you know, we we, we take it um, we take it sort of um, at face value, um, especially you know in a, in a case where um, you know we've we've got um, something in the category of covering, um, and so I would say sort of generally. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of using very sort of gen generalist terms. Generally, um, few people would um, kind of contest the idea that, for example, the hijab is religious practice. But um, there have been quite a few vocal groups, um, you know, taking part in those niqab controversies and debates um, that would say, oh, this, you know, face covering is not a religious practice. It's not an Islamic practice. And so, you know, um, th there, are, there were several different sort of uh, arguments to back this up. Uh, one of them being that, um, you know, the Quran does not say um, anything about face covering. And therefore, you know, if the Quran says nothing about this, then it's it's not a thing. But uh, I would I would sort of counter this um, saying that um, actually, if you look at the Quran, and that's, you know, that's um, Asma Barlas wrote about this um, at length. Um, the Quran doesn't actually say anything about head covering as such. Um, you know, um, 
that um, does not say say much about hair covering. Um, there, there's you know the, the hijab is not used in ter in terms of you know as in in such terms as we understand them today. So the hijab is used um, you know in the meaning of a curtain and so on. And so you know taking that argument that you know in, specifically in the Quran there is not such an injunction that women must cover their hair. You know we could say and in that case um, you know the hijab um, is not as it were, in the Quran. Uh, so, so, you know, there's no difference here between these two. Um, and yet we accept one, but reject the other. Um, even though the, those who practice um, face covering claim that for them it, it has religious relevance and, you know, explain, uh, explain very sort of um, um, in sophisticated ways um, um, how that happens, um, how they feel about it. Um, and so, and so, yeah, I mean, mm, it's what what's striking to me is that um, the two groups that actually um, you would not see those two groups uh, as natural allies um, those who deny the religious relevance of, of the niqab one of them would uh, were were have always been these um, people who sort of advocated for a for a niqab ban or a burqa ban um, you know um, and and then you've got a gr group of secular Muslims. Um, sort of you know um do not like the idea of the niqab and don't like to be associated with it because they see it as a sort of fundamentalist religious practice and so you know basically to as if to say oh i'm not a fundamentalist they would say oh you know uh, niqab is not um is not religious it's cultural so i've heard that um from quite quite a few people and um you know at the end of the day mm, you know, um, th that's not their business. Um, it's it's the women's business. You know how they choose to practice their religion in this in this in this case, and um, and so and so that that was my sort of um, starting point and principle of the book. That um, I did not debate that. Um, you know, I did not debate if you know, whether you know in the Islamic sources, you know, which, whichever madhab would agree with it or make it obligatory. Um, I mean, I, I made a few references to that, but um, that was not the point of the book. The point of the book was to understand how the women experience it. Um, and and in, in legal sense, especially in Europe, less so in the United States. In the United States, I think, um, um, as far as the niqab, I would say the um, separation of, of, of state from religion kind of works well enough um, in the sense that the you know the, the, there was one project um there was one proposal um that you know was shut down in georgia and that, that never really came back on the political scene um again that you know somebody wanted niqab banned in their state but um in europe as we know the story is um diametrically different i think there are probably i think maybe 10 or 11 um countries now, now that have banned um face covering and some of them are explicitly targeting the Muslim community. Some of them pretend to not be targeting, and they claim that you know this re relates to all um, face coverings. But um, you know that's that's not really um, a very sort of honest um, honest stance. Um, and the the whole idea here, um, the European um, tr Tribunal um, of Human Rights, uh, basically um, protects. Um, protects uh, religious practices that are sort of um, that are sort of enshrined right that uh, religious experts would agree on that they are religious practices and therefore 
they will be protected. But here, the whole sort of, you know, and that's one part of the of, of that paradox. The second part of the paradox is that, of course, um, if um, if anybody kind of um, identified the face or head covering as something instituted by religious authorities, then there would be um, immediately there would be you know a controversy that women are being forced to cover, and so Muslim women have been at pains, you know, th those who do cover, they have been at pains to say, you know, that um, in a huge majority of cases this is a choice. This is not, um, you know, this is not a sort of injunction or um, anything forced. Uh, they choose to cover because that kind of increases their spiritual experience. Um, and so, you know, and by virtue of this kind of free will argument, they cannot be protected legally. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, that's, um, that's, that, that's a big problem. Mm, because, you know, in, in countries like, like France or Belgium, a lot of women are kind of reported to, you know, just um, stay at home because um, they cannot participate in in the public sphere in the in the manner that, that they would prefer um, with covered faces. So they're kind of imprisoned in the house um, by law, by the you know the the legal legal changes, um, not um, not not by their male relatives, as um, you know some Islamophobes would um, you know suggest that you know they're being kept at home they, they're not allowed they mm -hmm. actually choosing um not to participate because it's not on their terms yeah um they while, while you are centering uh niqab voices throughout the book um you set you set up the conversation well and you've always you've already kind of pointed to some of this um but the the first chapter in the book uh kind of covers uh how media generally discusses women who wear niqab, um, just so people can follow the the uh, kind of trajectory of the book, um, what what would you say is the general portrait of uh, niqab wearing women that, uh, that, that the media has created uh, since they generally don't include their voices? Hmm. Well, it is definitely being sort of orientalized um, and otherized. It's, I would say it's a little better these days. I have seen more Nikabis kind of invited to comment on these things, on 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 these sort of political controversies that involve them. Mm. But I would say, you know, it's it's still kind of a very uncomfortable representation. Talk about sort of an average average article about you know women who wear the niqab. Um, you know, they're still kind of portrayed as 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 subjugated. Um, as maybe uh, uneducated, not necessarily speaking good um, English or French or you know whatever language is spoken um, in in the uh, in the country where they live in, um, or and that's sort of this you know maybe having a lot of children and um, generally being kind of you know imprisoned at home um, by this kind of role of wife and mother um, and not very kind of ambitious um, and on the other hand um, uh, especially sort of you know, between 2015 and maybe 17, um, um, the, the, there was a new kind of um, new idea how to represent these women. And um, that was basically to show them as fundamentalists, um, extremists, you know, um, kind of, you know, basically terrorists in hiding. Um, so there were quite a few, you know, reports from Syria. And, you know, th there was like, there was this whole avalanche of imagery of, you know, um, of niqabi women with weapons, um, 
and you know um and articles sens sensationalized articles about you know black widows and you know all these sort of um jihadi brides and and so on so um that was a very um a very damaging sort of process um and i the women i interviewed at the time said um that they were worried that um you know they will get they will get um they will they will they will feel the fallout of that they will be you know spat at they will be shouted at um in the street because um people will be sort of you know people will be kind of um riled up by this imagery so they they will be easy targets um and so and so you know the the statistics are are, are horrible um you know most women who are visibly religious muslim women who are visibly religious they um they experience some form of um harassment um and you know even things like assaults um there there's um there's an author in the uk um irene zempi she writes about specifically about the kinds of um you know harassment and assaults um these women experience mm. and so yeah that that's just horrifying and, and no doubt um, undoubtedly the media representations have a hand in that they stir those sentiments they they basically you know they Kind of you know heightened aggression against them um so so yeah yeah um and, and moving on the book you you do kind of reflect on and include uh nakabi women's uh kind of feelings about this which you're you're uh already gesturing towards um and you also uh kind of plot out how they kind of step in and kind of push back against much of this negative imagery um, some of it, uh, as you mentioned, right, is there is, a, uh, I, I, it sounds like increasing some Nikabi inclusive journalism that's happening. Um, but also, it sounds like uh, social media was a kind of entrance point for uh, Nikab wearing women to kind of speak for themselves and kind of, uh, I guess, demystify or kind of de-essentralize these, these negative in images. Can, can you talk a little bit about what that process looked like what were Nakabi women doing uh to kind of respond to these negative images um sure so, so some of that work um and i wrote i wrote a few articles um you know a, a few years ago about that um they actually do a, quite a lot of photographic work um um they mm, they basically take self-portraits um um to show themselves um in kind of mundane situations, um, you know, at home, um, in the garden, or just you know, like regular photographs. Because um, and they, they, when I first saw those photographs, you know, they struck me as unusual. You know, and why why should that be? That you know, women um, in mundane kind of surroundings are unusual, and that's because I I, I realized I was already kind of formed by this um, kind of. Im um photographic discourse of uh women in the cab um as as you know as as a kind of other and um perhaps dangerous and exotic and so you know mostly um this the the mainstream photography that would show them um would uh would focus just on the niqab so very often you, you would see like basically a black you know a black photograph with maybe like a strip for ice um, and that was supposed to represent that woman, or just a, you know, a kind of um, the face would be just just the eyes. And um, by by foregoing the context, um, that con you know, the, the the photographers contributed to this representation of 
these women as kind of strange, alien-like. Um, um, and so, and so, yeah, suddenly these regular mundane photos um, on Flickr, um, you know, popped up and I'm like, what, what? What's what's so strange? What's what, what's what's unusual about this? And um, and so that was my first sort of um, kind of um, observation about it. But of course, you know, the in the age of social media, it's not just the the photos. It's also about the interaction with audiences. Um, so people were able to comment. People were able to ask questions. And um, I was actually surprised how you know how how positive and. Kind of constructive those conversations were I, I i assumed again that the conversations would be you know very islamophobic very um sort of aggressive and um and that the the that the audiences would basically you know criticize um uh but but actually you know pe people seem to recognize that this was their chance to perhaps you know ask questions and find out more about it so this was um a second kind of Observe, second observation that really, you know, was 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 in in some ways uh, shocking, positively shocking that um, you know you could have um, a conversation between um, you know regular non-Muslims who who wanted to engage with um, these women who were in the cab, um, just sort of you know on a sort of very human level. So so I, I saw that as a kind of uh, you know opportunity for for women who were in the cab to like. To educate because that's what they expressed to me in in the interviews that they really wanted to you know educate it um you know the the mainstream public about you know what what this is because um they were very tired of the stereotypes and you know they were they were they jumped up um they were so happy to 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 talk with me um because they they understood that you know this was a chance that they were being given a platform for their voices so um so yeah, um, social media definitely is useful in the sense that you know there there are no gatekeepers um, like in the traditional media where you know everything has to go through the editor and you know the journalist the reporter has to be interested in the topic right first before anything happens. So mm -hmm. so basically they could um, they could go out there and they sometimes even manage to kind of gain po uh, support popular support. Um, by the use of hashtags, and that was the case um, in Canada, I think, where their prime minister said something very um, unsympath unsympathetic, something very stereotyped, and so um, somebody uh, somebody created a hashtag that was kind of um, a sarcastic response to that um, to that statement, and so a lot of people basically, you know, took up the hashtag. There was, you know, it was trending for for a while, um, just to say that you know Canada. Is not uh, treating treating um, Muslim women right, um, and so yeah, um, that kind of you know was definitely kind of a PR success, you could say. And so you know these days it's nothing unusual. There are groups everywhere um, that kind of associated uh, women who wear the niqab, and um, you know this is not nothing nothing kind of um, yeah un unusual anymore. But um, that's definitely a very useful kind of option um, yeah. for them. Kind of communicate yeah you also uh get into um the more kind of uh, spiritual and religious understandings uh of wearing the niqab for these women um which was one of your kind of central goals to, to understand um and you flesh this out in uh, in a lot of detail um 
so how how do your uh your subjects that you're talking to how do they express their understandings of pious stress and kind of the religious explanations uh for their decisions to wear the niqab hmm. yeah um so i interviewed women who um quite you know definitely and um, openly said they chose to wear the niqab and so Mm, for ninety nine percent of them, I would say, mm, the that decision um, was preceded by a very lengthy period of discernment. You know, uh, thinking about it, um, maybe trying it on for a little bit, um, reading about it. Um, a, a lot of them, a lot of them, mm, took 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 their time um, before they they made made that decision, and. And I think because they made that decision themselves, um, based on that discernment, um, they were they, their um, spiritual experience was very kind of positive, in the sense that you know, of course, I I know that um, there are women who put on the niqab and then take it off. It doesn't work for them for 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 different reasons. Um, but the women um, who I spoke with um, said you know they were very sort of firm in their decision, and they were you know they were. They were they were incredibly happy because um the way they way it worked for them is that they they felt closer to God when they were wearing it um and so they were giving me different sort of you know anecdotes and examples of how you know um they 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 read things that happened around them as signs that um you know God approved um and and yeah and that sort of you know strengthened strengthened them in the decision um. But yeah, I mean, you know, they definitely did not wish to be seen as people of the sort of highest religious order um, or spiritual order. Um, they said, you know, they're not better by um, by uh, wearing the niqab um, than other women, uh, you know, women who might be wearing the, the hijab or not um, covering their head at all. Um, they said, you know, it is an incredibly personalized personal decision and um definitely something like that like something like covering the face cannot or must not be instituted because if it's instituted it's going to be you know sort of you know um, just not this not it's not going to have that spiritual aspect it's going to be a burden and you know um this they they very often quoted that um quranic verse that um religion is not meant to be a burden for you um so um so yeah i mean um I'm um, sorry, I lost. I lost my. Train no, of no, that's great. But, um, but, the other um, thing that uh, that happens when um, your subjects are talking about this is uh, this kind of religious explanation does not always uh, translate in in the clearest ways to non-Muslim audiences. Uh, yeah. So there seems to be this kind of communication breakdown that you you point to uh, as well, where religious per perspectives. Are kind of almost um, misunderstood or not understood at all in a kind of sec secular framework of the U.S. and U.K. that you're talking about. So maybe you could talk a little bit about this as well. What, you know, how do um, niqab wearers who are understanding this from a religious perspective uh, help uh, non-Muslim audiences make sense of this in this kind of these as these secular audiences or these secular sensibilities that that don't always kind of understand in the same way? Yeah. So. Um... You know, the, the, these women are incredibly astute in recognizing that um, communication um, 
gap or disconnect because yeah it, it is um there there's some literature that talks about how you know the pious language is is not understood it's rejected um is kind of laughed at sometimes even um you know but by um uh, by your sort of mainstream member of the public um um and especially i would say when it's when it's um pertains to islam because you know islam is not just like any other minority religion um whether in the uk or in the united states is is you know it's it's 10 times more otherized and vilified than others so so yeah religious language uh, that comes from a muslim um very often is just treated with suspicion and so and so um the women who who wear the niqab recognize that and you know they, they still um you know they had to communicate um and you know the niqab is you know for a for a from non for a non-Muslim is the first thing they see and the first thing that uh, very often they want to sort of um, use as a point of connection. So uh, Muslim women who are the niqab that I interviewed, um, they, they developed strategies to um, to sort of translate the, the the niqab and you know more, more largely the sort of language of piety into into the secular language because otherwise they knew that they would be misunderstood and um, you know that the communication act would not happen. And so they used many different strategies. Um, they, um, I, call, I call them um, frames. So um, they, they would use humor, for example, um, just to sort of, you know, you, you know, if somebody, uh, if somebody kind of asked about the niqab and it was winter, um, you know, you know, the, the woman, would, the, the woman would say, oh, you know, it keeps me warm and, you know, keeps my nose warm and, and whatever. So, you know, um, Humor is kind of a well-recognized strategy for for people who are frequently authorized to sort of you know to to break that that barrier. And um, of course, you know, um, from a sort of ethical point of view, they should not have to do that. But um, you know, that is the reality. That you know, they needed um, they needed to work. They needed to be out there and um, you know communicate with people. I think that particular situation with the you know winter. Uh, was you know basically this woman was a driving instructor and she was just you know standing next to another driving instructor at the um, at the examination center so you know this was kind of like a professional conversation and yeah um, um, yeah it's, it, it must have been highly uncomfortable for her to discuss this but that's how she sort of butted it away um, you know other women talk about um, you know the language of human rights of course um, uh, of um, bodily autonomy um you know they, they they talk about you know the niqab as you know sort of comparing it for example to a tattoo uh, that you know a lot of people um wear tattoos some people even you know have like a full body tattoo and um you know that nobody nobody's talking about banning such a full body tattoo even though it might make some people uncomfortable it might uh make it harder to recognize that person or whatnot but um yeah they pointed out to these kinds of in inconsistencies to show that um you know um a lot of there is a, a lot of margin for acceptance of difference in in the british and american societies but uh, they're kind of like um the niqab is very often beyond the acceptable difference you know that's like a step too far um you know the religious and yes we understand and we accept other religions and minorities but this is a step too far this is just you know something that uh, kind of almost offends and so um and so yeah i mean 
Um, I, I would say that, you know, that this was incredibly, you know, it was survival, um, a survival instinct really to, to learn to talk about it in ways that could be understood and perhaps, perhaps accepted. Yeah. And this, you, you wrap up the book, uh, kind of looking at some of these, um, broader kind of issues of, uh, wearing the cob in the context of things like racism and sexism and Islamophobia more generally. So can, can you talk about, um, how wearing the niqab intersects with these other kind of, uh, uh, broader kind of public issues? What, what are the social effects for niqab wearers in these kind of negative contexts? Hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, of course, you know, th this is not just, um, sort of, um, prejudice against minority religions. Um, very often um, it intersects with 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 racism uh, in different forms. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, one one woman, um, one woman I interviewed said, um, you know, for her as an African-American Muslim Nikabi, you know, she's um, she's sort of like triply, um, triply at risk um, in, in this country in the sense that, you know, um, you know, she she could she could get it from so many different directions, um, and so, and so yeah. I mean, um, uh, you could say the niqab, you know, by by virtue of you know of, of being kind of a covering um, garment, um, can can work in different ways. Um, I guess for for um, for women of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, and so. And so, yeah, for 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 a few um, black Muslim women who I spoke with, um, you know, this was something that um, basically shielded them from racist reactions um, from fellow Muslims, because um, the the more um, the more covered up they were, um, you know, the the less um, racist kind of harassment they had, um, because you know th there there is the issue of um, you know th there is the issue of um, anti-black racism amongst Muslims. Um, and so, you know, for them, actually putting on the niqab was kind of a relief because, um, you know, they basically protected themselves in that way. But, um, but for a lot of, um, yeah, for for a, I spoke with a white convert to Islam, and she told me that um, for her, for her, the niqab worked in a different way that was protective, uh, in the sense that she got a lot of interest um, when she was just wearing um, the hijab. Um, so she she got a lot of marriage proposals and you know dating proposals um, from men, but as soon as she um, covered herself up with the niqab and she covered up um, her blonde hair, that completely stopped. So here the niqab sort of um, you know basically also covered her up um, in the sense that you know covered up her ethnic um, and racial sort of background, and um, yeah she she became sort of. Um, I wouldn't say untouchable, but um, she was not recognized as somebody different within the Muslim community. But you know, that's 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 just sort of one kind, um, one 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 kind of um, kind of effect it could have um, for for a lot of women. Um, yeah, we talked about you know how um, how you know for for um, how the niqab um, makes them more or less in intelligible um, when they're out when they're going out and about. But um, at the end of the day, you know, um, you know that that kind of perhaps comes down to the question: 
um, of whether, you know, um, Islamophobia is a kind of racism mm. because, um, you know, there, there will be a, a lot of people who say, um, you know, who will who understand racism biologically and they will say Islam is not a race, it's um, a cultural construct. Therefore, um, therefore, you know, you might dislike Islam, but that does not make, make you a racist. But, um, you know, the, the, the actually, you know, the, the mm, definition of racism that's is accepted at least you know in academic circles you know sociologically is that it is um, related to sort of um, socially constructed perceptions um, and attributes that are kind of attached to people um, based on their kind of um, background but um, yeah it's it's by no means just biological right so um, so for for a lot of people for a lot of these women um, Basically, you know, racism, um, Islamophobia, and um, sexism—I would say—you know—connected co and interacted in very different ways. So, you know, it's it's just two, two examples of that. Um, yeah. Um, well, it's a great book. I think you tie together so many different aspects, and you do a great job of centering your subjects' voices. Um, I hope listeners will will pick up a copy, and I think it would actually work great in uh, classrooms as well. Um, what what kind of things are you working on now? What kind of uh, things might we hope to to read from you in the future? Um, thanks for the question. I I pivoted away from um, the issue of the niqab, um, and I I'm really interested uh, at the moment in in the connection between um, conversion and and white supremacy. So I'm basically looking at how how white supremacy might manifest itself in the context of white conversion. And you know when when we say white supremacy, it's often kind of associated with with maybe like um, clean shaven men demonstrating, you know, neo Nazis. And certainly, uh, there is actually um, a population of those of those of people who from those movements who convert to Islam. But I'm interested in white supremacy as it kind of manifests in day to day life. Um, and so. Um, yeah, um, that's a book. That's a project I'm working on with my colleague Joanna Krotofil from Poland. Um, she's at Jagiellonian University in Krakow, um, and we've published um, an article about about that um, in relation to Polish converts to Islam. Uh, we're, we published that in Sociology of Religion, um, but now we're we're working on a book. Um, so hopefully within a year or two, that that book will be will be published. Um, and that's also a book about the Polish context, but um, we're hoping to make the the argument about uh, you know um, how sort of white supremacy can manifest through theologies or interactions in um, kind of mixed racial Muslim communities. Um, um, you know, basically more general. Um, that's not something that applies just to Poland. I think um, just that that's just an example, but. Um, but yeah, we will, we will, we will, we will be back with a more developed argument around that. Yeah, sounds like uh, important work. So thank you for pursuing it, and uh, congrats on uh, on wearing niqab. This was a great, great book. Thank you so much. I'm glad you liked it. That was my conversation with Anna Piella about her book "Wearing the Niqab: Muslim Women in the UK and the US," published with Bloomsbury in 2021. And thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.